I am 100% behind Q. He's working for the president, he's working for our country. Alien life, uh, like pedophiles, uh, you know, and it just seeks to tie all of that together. Welcome, listeners, to the 23rd chapter of the QAnon Anonymous Podcast, the Crowdy Arcadia, Wowzy, Alabia, Townie Regalia, Saudi Arabia episode. We are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. What an episode we have for you today, listener. First, we'll be exploring what QAnon thinks of the Kingdom of Saud. Then, Jake has cooked up some research on the QAnon perceived connection between, of all fucking things, the Las Vegas shooting in Saudi Arabia. After that, we'll put our serious hats on and dive into the history of Saudi Arabia and its relationship with the United States. Finally, we have Felix Biederman of Chapo Trap House on the podcast, a decorated three-star gamer and Saudi Arabia gossip columnist who has agreed to take a bone saw to Jake for everybody's entertainment. But before all that... QAnon News. All right, first up, Q is back and back on his bullshit. On uh, January 5th, 2019, Q posted some new drops, uh, breaking a long period of silence that began on December 22nd, 2018. Uh, Since Q's return in the new year, Q has pushed a number of baseless conspiracy theories, including the theory that New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman is sending secret codes through her tweets, the theory that the MKUltra program is still operational, Mm -hmm. according to records, actually ended in 1973, and uh, the theory that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, is being given off-market drugs in order to keep her alive. Next up, uh, th- this is a very sad story. Uh, Seattle Proud Boy and QAnon follower has been accused of murdering his brother with a sword. Um, <laughs> prosecutors say that Bucky Wolf, 26, not uh, killed his chick. brother in Seattle on Sunday night Fuck by stabbing him in the head with a or with a four foot long sword. Oh my god, that's I, so crazy! That's like, like a fucking two handed like claymore. Yeah, that's... I think there was a cop in an article who was describing like the level of kind of physical intensity you have to to yeah yeah like, to like guy drive was, a sword need, through yeah. somebody. You need yeah. like the power of God. No, which... not through somebody through someone's head. Yeah, yeah, that is an incredibly hard to pierce part of your body. He must have had the power of Q behind oh him. Oh my god, the power of the angels. Ugh. So, All right, sorry. Wolf, who prosecutors say exhibited signs of mental illness, called 911 on himself after allegedly killing his brother and said, God told me he was a lizard. Uh, when detectives arrived, he reportedly believed that they were also lizards. Mm-hmm. Wolf has been charged with second degree murder and will be tried by a jury of his peers, all lizards. All right. <laughs> God. Bucky Bucky Wolf's uh, Facebook and YouTube accounts revealed that he was a believer in uh, a number of conspiracy theories, including QAnon, reptilians, and also gang-stalking or targeted individuals. And uh, people who call themselves targeted individuals believe that they are receiving uh, uh, harassment from some sort of mysterious uh, organization who wants to make them miserable day by day. Yeah, it really looks like uh, he was a really true believer. He posted videos on his uh, Bucky Wolf's Facebook page from uh, Praying Medic, and uh, like screenshots of Q drops and lots of like Q non memes yeah. and stuff. Mm. Something else that I discovered that uh, I tweeted about is that if you look at his YouTube page and the uh, kinds of videos that he liked over time, you can sort of see an interesting trajectory. Um, so his earliest liked videos, they, are, they aren't about politics or conspiracy theories at all. They're like songs and like fitness videos, motivational videos, really, really normal stuff. But then he gets into this alt-light YouTube space. One of them's like Hunter Avalone. And it's all about like, you know, political correctness sucks and like, you know, right, I, yeah, hate, yeah. I hate vegans, <clears throat> that kind of stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
And then after that, it looks like he gets into like Alex Jones and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, slope. And then he gets into like Gavin McGinnis, who founded the Proud Boys, mm-hmm. uh, L- Lauren Southern, uh, the far right English activist Tommy Robinson. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he starts liking Red Ice TV videos, and this is explicitly white nationalist content mm-hmm. is as about as hard as it gets. And then uh, after that, he gets into QAnon and then he gets into like reptilian videos. This is so incredible. The work that you did here, finding this uh, kind of series of likes over time, because it does show how you can be uh, activated online. If you already have a history of mental illness even if you start with something very innocent. And I don't think I've ever seen such a perfectly painted uh, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, It yeah. ended in the murder of his family member. Yeah, You can't get much more concrete when you're talking about how dangerous this shit is. Yeah, I was and do try to be very, very cautious about what kind of conclusions I can draw from this. Mm-hmm. I posted the, the, the trajectory of the screenshots. A lot of people came at me and they were, they're like, all, well, you know, he was uh, schizophrenic. So you can't say that it's, it's all YouTube's fault. Of course, I'm not, I'm not saying it's all YouTube's fault. I'm saying that, you know, the fact that he's schizophrenic, you know, that doesn't. Doesn't, but that doesn't also absolve YouTube. No. Well, or, yeah, the algorithm, other, or this con- these the content, content creators. creators more than anything. These people that are always trying to white- wash their hands of this. The Proud Boys released a, an incredibly, you know, dishonest and shitty statement trying to wash their hands of this, and it's like, well, you got to wonder why someone this mentally ill is going to you at the end of the line right before he kills his brother. Yeah. Like, if if you're the, the person he starts listening to as he starts believing that his brother's a reptile, just, I mean, you know, I just don't see this um, pipeline happening as clearly, you know, when people try to make false equivalencies with the left or whatever, saying, oh, like, yeah... How many threads do we have of Antifa people who started by just being like, hey, I like uh, Nancy Pelosi, and then they end up liking Bernie Sanders, and then they end up uh, joining Antifa, and then they kill a family member? Like, no, that's just not what's happening, because the hatred, the inherent kind of hatred of the other, uh, whether that be a woman, whether that be a person of color, someone of different gender, or... or uh, A lizard. Yeah, or what I... Yeah. <laughs> right, species. <laughs> but no, but like that hatred is so inherent uh, to this kind of um, right wing and specifically like kind of pseudo fucking scientific... Yeah. YouTube bullshit. Well, yeah, like there's there's nobody on, you know, like left YouTube that's saying that like these people are coming for you. Yeah. You know, that's a very different a Be- different Because we all know these people have already come for us and they own everything. Yeah, and, yeah. And well, they yeah. run all the corporations. <laughs> but but it's under. a very different thing. And and it's yeah. also interesting, you know, to actually it's one cuz look, I mean, uh, let's be real. I I've watched a, a lot of terrible YouTube videos. Yeah. But there is a huge difference between watching and liking because when you like something that is intrinsically tied to your online persona as you were able to sort of trace this yeah. all this stuff back and watch this guys so at some point the you know these guys like this get to that point where they're like I I don't care what you know I don't care that people know but that's that because- this is the content that I'm Absorbing and society tells you that it's not that bad. You just chose one side and you're just experiencing one side instead of like, oh, you're getting trapped into a vortex of of falsity yeah. and anger and just resentment, you know, that then would lead you to want to kill somebody. Because hey, seeing lizards is one thing, right? But being empowered to use a sword and vi- and use violence against someone, the last time the Proud Boys 
uh, convened, which ended in the beating of multiple people. Um, and, and, and after the, the cops were pressured, some arrests on the right, thank God. Uh, but yeah, he, Gavin showed up with a giant fucking sword and he was on stage to quote, recreate the, uh, the assassination of a left wing figure. But hey, that's like just their opinion, man. Yeah, it's right. like, I'm sorry, but like at what oh. point are you responsible for someone using a sword on someone else when you're appearing with a sword and you're feeding people anger and you're telling them yeah. that, that their their race, their very race and gender is at stake? There was an incredible QAnon oh. moment at the Golden Globe Awards. Uh, it, Jeff Bridges was honored with a, a lifetime, some sort of lifetime achievement award. And they showed a scene from White Squall where he's ringing the where we go one, we go all bell. And the Q community went ballistic. Course, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. which is funny because it's like, what did they think that like that Q infiltrated like a lowly editor who's like, you know, oh, you know, not being paid overtime to like make this clip, you know, make Wait this, until there's this like montage another, happen. Imagine another Jack Reacher movie drops like these people yeah. built their entire uh, uh, ideology around made up shit from movies. And then the movies like reinforce <laughs> yeah, it. They're the like, look, re see, it's in the movie. It's like, you based it on that. It's funny. I actually tweeted. I was like, man, you guys, this is like really fucking me up. I'm going to go into the Discord and like somebody talk <laughs> me down. And I can't remember who it was, if it was Repton or it was. Repton or Rooster, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was Rooster. And he was like, well, no, man. I mean, think about it this way. Like, that's a good edit. Like, they're about to show this scene from, you know, they're about to show this scene of him commanding, you know, the people on the boat and sailing. Like, then you have that nice, uh, you know, sort of like. Uh, audio cue transition with the ringing of the bell Did like that. Just say cue. That's where I would have. That's where I would have cut it. And I was like, shit. That that's how I would have cut it too. Oh, okay, okay. I'm cool. And and I got talked back <laughs> yeah. down. So uh, thank, thank you, God. thank you, Discord community. I love you guys uh, for keeping me sane. Into you know, I know I'm not always around. I'm kind of like a bad yeah, Jake, dad. Jake, uh, Jake gets red pilled on yogurt boxes. He gets red pilled uh, <laughs> while looking at his dick pissing. Uh, you know, you gotta. I'll probably get red pilled twice during I'm this episode. I'm gonna actually tattoo information on Jake's dick so that he doesn't red pill himself. Yeah, shit's gonna be like memento. Well, like, I'll, I'll, I'll be like beaten off one day and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, this is bad. You need to stop beating off to Laura Ingram. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I swear to God, I don't. Before we go on, I do want to say like one last thing about uh, uh, YouTube and the sad case of Bucky Wolf is that it's like I, I, I'm not really alleging that uh, YouTube is responsible for Bucky Wolf's mental degradation, um, if any lawyers for Google are listening. But uh, I'm also um, I'm also saying that we can't rule out the role that YouTube's recommendation algorithm had in pushing absolutely. content yep. to him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know what role that has, but I think it's worth exploring exactly. Or the role of YouTube when it is carrying these messages. It is rebroadcasting yes. these fucking messages. Who cares about the fucking algorithm? Well, They're broadcasting right. white nationalist messaging, and that right. should be fucking illegal. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, I think that I think that YouTube would be wise. I mean, Google is an insanely wealthy company. They can afford... Why am I the one pointing out these, these, these problems? They should have super genius Stanford people working on this problem instead of me. The problem is... All they the libs have iPhones. Don't care. They don't right. care. Google does not care that this stuff's happening. No, they, they don't right. care. They just don't. They, they, it's like an inconvenience, maybe a PR issue. At best. Oh, right, right, right. They send yeah. a press release. And yeah, then it's clicks. It's but still they, clicks. They don't have responsibility because you know they're not. Um, 
they're not a newspaper or whatever. Yeah. So it's yeah. like oh, yeah. that was the whole argument with Facebook. They aggressively pursued to becoming the the biggest media platform, and then they just denied that they had any of the responsibilities that a media platform would have. Yeah. So fuck them. Fuck them. All right. QAnon and Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, in the QAnon universe, the House of Saud is one of the three entities that control the world, uh, along with the Rothschilds and George Soros. In QAnon, they believe that the Saudis are the wealthiest out of all three. Uh, The Saudi royal family, they believe, use their vast wealth to control U.S. and U.K. politicians and use their investments in tech companies to control information. And what's worse, Hillary Clinton was complicit in Saudi Arabia's control of the world, possibly through the Clinton Foundation or her position as Secretary of State. This is uh, what they believe in the QAnon world. In fact, uh, several early uh, Q drops end with the sign-off, Alice and Wonderland. Uh, This is, of course, different than Alice in Wonderland, the name of the uh, Disney movie. And uh, Q has said that. Hey, uh, come on, man! It's a Lewis Carroll book. Yeah, it's a book. Okay, the, the Lewis Carroll book is called Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. You Philistine! <laughs> <laughs> I've angered Daddy. <laughs> uh, Q has said that when the phrase is decoded, Alice is Hillary Clinton, and uh, Wonderland means Saudi Arabia. Wait, Q said that when you decode it, this yes, is the yeah, answer. Yes, yes. yes well, then yeah. you don't need to decode it. He said it. Yeah, yeah. This was this was like this was something that was uh, in November of 2017, mm-hmm. and a lot of people thought that this was like like an early sort of trial decode to teach them how to decode things. Yeah, yeah. And so so eventually, Q sort of like just coughed up the answer. Oh yeah, uh, for the community. <laughs> Researchers uh, in the QAnon community later determined that the, the whole Wonderland thing, meaning Saudi Arabia, was a reference to the 2016 article published in the journal New Eastern Outlook titled Saudi Arabia, the Bloody Wonderland. Man, Q gets his inspo from like weird shit. Like he finds some like weird ass, like desolate article somewhere and he's like, I'm going to base my code on this. This Ben Affleck movie. Yeah, that's like that's like me being like, I'm I'm going to base my code on Todd's adventures in Slime World, an obscure (laughs) Sega Genesis game (laughs) (laughs) that came out uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, Yeah. So uh, the Saudi royal family is different than the Rothschilds and George Soros, however, because according to Q, Saudi Arabia was the first place in the world where the corrupt will be brought to justice. Uh, after the swamp is drained in Saudi Arabia, Q claims, corruption will be handled in a specific order, then the United States, and then Asia, and then finally the European Union. He loves starting in Saudi Arabia because they decapitate people in this in the central squares when they when they uh, commit bad crimes. It, yeah. mm-hmm. So that's that's very Q. They're like, yes. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Q claims that... Uh, they targeted Saudi Arabia first because the problem of human trafficking there was especially bad. Mm. Uh, so in an August 31st, 2018 Q drop, uh, Q links to a couple articles about Saudi about uh, human trafficking in Saudi Arabia and then says this. Saudi Arabia was a priority. We wish this was a dream. So Q. In Saudi Arabia... I this... can't believe Travis just interrupted Q. Incredible. <laughs> how, Incredible. How, so rude. How <laughs> dare you? I spent weeks writing that post. <laughs> <laughs> so in Saudi Arabia, this cleansing of the deep state uh, allegedly came in the form of a Saudi purge of powerful people that happened in the real world in November of 2017. This was the product of alleged anti-corruption efforts by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. As many as 500 people rounded up in the sweep. Many QAnon people see this uh, real-life mass arrest of powerful people in Saudi Arabia as a model for the mass arrest incident they baselessly believe will happen in the U.S. 
so funny because we'll look later at what was rounded up there and it's just him trying to consolidate power. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the people arrested was uh, the Prince Bin Talal al-Walid, who is portrayed as a Saudi Arabian villain in QAnon world. Uh, Donald Trump, in fact, in a tweet, once called him Dopey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Yeah. Uh. Mm-hmm. So they so they think that uh, that this <laughs> prince and uh, other wealthy Saudis uh, controlled legislators and, uh, and other people in the U.S. and this uh, the rest of him was a blow to the deep state and the cabal. And uh, Saudi Arabia was a very popular topic, especially in early Q days. There are over sixty Q drops that reference Saudi Arabia, uh, and some of the earliest ones reference Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia in May of two thousand seventeen. Um, in a November 2017 Q drop, uh, Q says this. How did Saudi Arabia welcome POTUS during his trip? Why was this historic and not covered by MSM? How did Saudi Arabia welcome BO during his trip? How did Saudi Arabia welcome HRC during her trip? Why is this relevant? Not suggesting Saudi Arabia is clean by any... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I love when Q turns into like our, like a just a college kid that's like, well, well uh, not suggesting Saudi Arabia is cleaned by any means, but they play a role in this global game of risk. Oh my god! <laughs> He's like, I brought it back. High five. Teaching yeah. geopolitics to idiots. It's like that game Risk. So uh, this Q drop is playing that Saudi Arabia gave Trump a hero's welcome for helping take down the global cabal. Mm. Q has also implied that uh, Saudi Arabia just pays off American politicians by donating to their foundations. And uh, November 4th, 2017, Q drop, Q uh, reacted to news about uh, the Saudi Arabia purge, and uh, Q said this. Martial law declared in SA. Why is this relevant? How much money was donated to Clinton Foundation by Saudi Arabia? How much money was donated to John McCain Institute by Saudi Arabia? How much money was donated to Pelosi Foundation? So, uh, yeah, actually, I looked into this, and uh, according to the Clinton Foundation, the Saudi Arabia uh, did donate somewhere between ten million and twenty-five million to uh, the Clinton Foundation in two thousand eight. Uh, the Saudi government did donate one million to the John McCain Institute in uh, two thousand fourteen. However, uh, this is an institute that was created uh, with leftover funds from John McCain's uh, presidential run. And John McCain's role was largely honorary. His name did not appear on the foundation's tax records. And he had no role in the institution's management. And But there's absolutely no evidence I could find that Saudi Arabia donated to the Paul and uh, Nancy Pelosi Charitable Foundation. By the way, they donate to all politicians and stuff. Like they, mm-hmm. there's, yeah. a lo- there's a lot of true stuff in some of the claims that yeah, yeah. Q does. As usual, there's Q... Uh, there, sorry. As usual, there's true information. And then he <laughs> deforms the, the final... Uh, the final goal and or result. Yeah. So, um, and of course, uh, Saudi Arabia is central to this global pedophile ring that QAnon people think that they're working to break up. In a November 5th, uh, 2017 Q drop, Q says this. Who is the financial backer for human trafficking? Who is the broker for underage sex? Think Saudi Arabia. How does FB and Instagram... <laughs> It's funny to see Q say Instagram. I don't know why. How does FB and Instagram play a role in capture? Think Taken. What? Wait, wait. The movie Taken? Oh, yeah. yeah. He loves it. I have a very particular set of skills. Skills I've learned over a long career. 
skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. That's the one. I will find you. I will post to Instagram about you. Hold on, let me finish. I will find you, and I will kill you. <laughs> Good luck. Dude, literally Jake's face was so glassed out, like he just... Like I love doing that monologue. I love doing that monologue. I once <laughs> to, to to take us to derail the podcast uh, as I like to do. I once was at a bar and um, got into a a a brawl of sorts with the uh, the staff because a Canadian friend of mine tried to leave the bar with a beer, and uh, the he, he he was with his cousin who's a girl, and uh, one of the bouncers actually like assaulted the girl. And um, instead of like doing the right thing and calling the police, when I got home, I called the bar and I was like, uh, this is her father. I have a long set of very special skills that make me a nightmare <laughs> for people like you. And I did the whole I did the whole like Liam Neeson, oh the whole yeah. taken monologue because I had it memorized. And the, the bartender was like, uh, OK, sir. So you want to file a complaint? <laughs> he, like, he like didn't give a fuck whatsoever. OK, oh back God. to back to good shit. Bye. In order to educate the QAnon community about what he's talking about. Yeah. Q references the uh, 2008 film Taken, in which Liam Neeson uh, plays a man who rescues his daughter from Albanian sex traffickers. In another November 5th uh, Q drop, uh, Q says this. We are at war. Saudi Arabia cut the strings. They are scrambling for cover and using any means necessary out of their remaining power control. God bless. <laughs> Q. <laughs> so here Q is basically saying that as a consequence of this uh, November 2017 purge, the uh, puppet master Saudis had released their puppets, which uh, allegedly includes Hillary Clinton and other U.S. politicians, from their power and their protection. And now that uh, Saudi Arabia, the bad guys in Saudi Arabia have been knocked out of power, all these people are running for their lives. Mm. So uh, very, very broadly, like Saudi Arabia is, is a really big deal in the QAnon universe. They see the royal family as this super, super powerful globally. They, they control Hillary Clinton and just everyone else who we think, you know, is a powerful politician. And uh, they're also central to human trafficking that they, they think that they're battling against. And uh, they also think that the, uh, the sweep of powerful Saudis in uh, November 2017 is the first step towards taking down the evil cabal, the, the first domino toppling that would lead to the Great Awakening. And uh, there's lots and lots of other stuff. I'm not going to go over because it would be tedious. Q references like Osama bin Laden's Saudi connections and U.S. military bases in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but there is another facet to the Saudi Arabia and the QAnon universe that's really, really super fascinating. And it relates to the deadly mass shooting in Las Vegas by Stephen Poddock that happened on October 1st, 2017. We could probably do an entire episode on the Las Vegas shooting and the hundreds of conspiracy theories surrounding it. One of which, by the way, is uh, that the Ellen DeGeneres slot machines in the Mandalay Bay Casino and her being the only media personality granted an interview with the infamous casino security guard somehow signifies that she was involved in the cover-up. Mm -hmm. oh, so Ellen. when you're dragging Ellen into right. this, I, well, she is retiring soon. Gay people hate country music. <laughs> <laughs> the real story here stems from a couple cue drops and a deep dive into 4chan for some well-researched analysis from the Anons, which you can always count on me for. Uh, and God damn it, Josiah, don't you dare fact check me on this. All of it's true. I, you, I swear to God. You have been warned. You've been warned, Josiah. The main Q drop uh, was on November 5th, uh, 2017. Las Vegas. What hotel did the reported gunfire occur from? What floor specifically? Who owns the top floors? Top floors only. Why is that relevant? 
What was the shooter's name? What was his net worth? How do you identify a spook? What can historical data collection reveal? Was there any eyewitnesses? It's were there, you fucking bad writer. <coughs> Who? Was he registered as a security guard? Why is MS-13 important? God's sake. What doesn't add up? Was there only one shooter? Why was JFK released? What? What do the JFK files infer? Was there only one shooter? Who was in LV during this time? What was the real mission? Speculate. I mean... Which is the truest thing that Q really has said. Yeah. It's like, speculate. speculate. Right. That could be every one of his drops. Just <laughs> yeah. speculate. Speculate. Q. Talk amongst yourselves. Why are survivors dying randomly? What do each of these survivors have in common? Did they talk on social media? What did they say? Were they going to form a group? Why is this relevant? How did they die? What CIA report was released by WK? What can control a car? How did two of the survivors die? Car crash? How does this connect to SA? What just happened in SA? Who owns the top floors of the hotel? What happened today in SA? To who specifically? Was POTUS in the LV that night? Yes? No? Why was he there? So he answers his own question. It's just so... Who did he have a classified meeting with? Did Air Force One land at McCarran? What unmarked tail numbers flew into McCarran that night? Trace Air Force One that entire day. What do you notice? Classified. Q. Wow. So Las Vegas is one of those weird cases where it was easily the craziest mass shooting we've ever seen on domestic soil, and yet I have never in my life seen the media so uninterested. It's a white guy with tons of illegal guns, mass casualties, and the news was like, well, guess he just went crazy. Case closed. So for this segment, I wanted to actually go through and try to answer as many of Q's questions as I could to see what tracks and what doesn't, how the fuck this is related to Saudi Arabia, and why I've had diarrhea for three days straight. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so we take the we take the part of the Q drop. What hotel did the reported gunfire occur from? What floor specifically? Who owns the top floors? Okay, so the hotel, obviously Mandalay Bay. It seems like the general consensus from the Mockingbird media is that the shooting took place on the 32nd floor. Uh, and as I typed, quote, who owns top floors into Google search, it autofilled to Mandalay Bay. So clearly, I was not the first baker to track these crumbs. Turns out the top four floors of the Mandalay Bay Casino are actually a Four Seasons hotel. And a quick Google search uh, showed that the Four Seasons has two majority owners, Bill fucking Gates hmm. and friend of the show, Prince Al-Wahid bin Talal, who is a Saudi businessman, investor, philanthropist, and a member of the Saudi royal family, as we discussed before. We can we can get rid of the philanthropist there. Just because the guy did some PR doesn't mean you should like him. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Jake. Yeah, my bad. Um, <laughs> what was the shooter's name? What was his net worth? Okay, so we all know the shooter's name was Stephen Paddock. Uh, uh, independent got... Dot co reporting states that he was worth around $2 million, and that estimate also includes at least $62,000 worth of weapons and firearm accessories collected from his homes and the Mandalay Bay suite at the time of his death. Uh, I will not bore you with the minutia, but Q then goes on to suggest that this guy is some kind of intelligence spook. Uh, he also references the JFK files released by Donald Trump as if to suggest that there were two shooters involved in the Las Vegas massacre. This is our fucking fate. This is what we fucking did to ourselves. We are going to have mentally ill people shooting everybody up, and then it's just going to be what conspiracy theory ends up on top to explain it. What yeah. a fucking hell we live in. Yeah. Who was in LV during this time? 
What was the real mission? Speculate. And speculate they did. Although I was unable to verify, multiple sources online believed that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had rented out the entire top floor of the Four Seasons inside the Mandalay Bay Hotel and was just enjoying the Vegas fanfare by dressing in civilian clothes, just like Prince Jasmine and Aladdin, uh, as we, are, we all know. Um, they point to a video of SWAT officers escorting a guy in civilian clothes out of the casino, um, which I don't know if you guys watch, but that's what it is. They're it's, claiming it's, it was Ben Salman. Th yeah, they're claiming okay. that it was him. Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the LVPD has commented that while they can't verify exactly who the man was, they assume he must have been casino personnel as the SWAT team would need access to the doors and the stairwells. It's a fucking casino. Every door is like sealed yeah. off. So that totally, that totally makes sense. But of course, this has led to one of the wildest conspiracy theories that the Las Vegas shooting was actually a failed assassination attempt on the Crown Prince, the real mission. Hmm. One and on on 4chan recounts what he believes was the real plan. Dude, I hate when I try to assassinate someone, but then I end up shooting past him out a window and killing like 40 fucking people. <laughs> you know that when that happens? <laughs> so Anon so Anon on 4chan writes, Paddock is the contact man to supply the guns. He meets a couple of assassins ahead of time. Remember, the shooting starts at 10.05. Uh, at this point, Paddock is thinking this is a gun deal. Only a few magazines are loaded. He merely wants to show the customers how to load the chamber, etc. What he doesn't know is that the advance team was sent to secure the floor, that all but one entry point to the floor would be barricaded, uh, crucial since the reason Campos, who's the security card, becomes suspicious of the blocked doors is what ultimately leads him to investigate. Uh, that's per his testimony. Uh, the reason for the barricade is that once the assault starts, the assassins, these are the assassins, uh, the would-be assassins. MBS? Yeah, trying to kill By the MBS. way, this is, none of this is real. We're, this is just... Yeah, this is some guy on 4chan uh, taking what Q has said about Las Vegas and, and turning it into um, a story. A story. Uh, the reason for the barricades is that once the assault starts, the assassins want to make sure to impede the authorities as much as possible from reaching the top floors. CIA, FBI, or Trump's own intelligence got wind of the assassination. Just his brain. Yeah. It's just his brain. It's like a Krang being. <laughs> Trump's brain in a fucking giant Krang machine. Uh, Trump's crane got wind of the assassination <laughs> that was about to take place. Immediate action is taken to round up the assassins. Remember, we're talking about an army of assassins here. You can't kill a, pr a crown prince who's protected by 30 armed bodyguards by pulling a Jack Ruby. I estimate at least 20 assassins in total. Damn. So I tried to see what I could find uh, to lend any credence whatsoever to this idea that Paddock was some kind of alphabet agency arms distributor. Uh, according to the filed court docs, uh, there were records of Paddock sending out emails that seemed to be advertisements for the purchase of illegal automatic weapons. Um, and then I've actually included some of the... One of the emails he sent uh, goes, Try an AR before you buy. We have huge selection located in the Vegas area. Um, then he also writes, sends out an email. He says, we have a wide variety of optics and ammunition to try. Uh, for a thrill, try out bump fire ARs with a 100-round magazine. And the sad, scary irony of that is uh, palpable. Yeah, like the guy's fucking selling and buying weapons. He's American. And, uh, you know, this nationality is just literally at this point a mental illness. Yeah. And then Q writes, why are... <laughs> Travis is not happy about that. <laughs> he looked at me and gave me the stink eye. Why are survive my country, man. Why are survivors dying randomly? What do each of these survivors have in common? Did they talk on social media? What did they say? As far as I could find, eight survivors died within 30 days after the attack. There was Dennis and Lorraine Carver, whose car veered off the road and exploded. 
There was Danny Contreras, who was found shot dead uh, from multiple gunshot wounds in an abandoned building. Uh, there was Kimberly, uh, Kimberly Sukamel, who died in her sleep. Uh, her grandmother believes it was from the shock of surviving the shooting. Uh, there was Orville Almond, who died from a seizure in his sleep, uh, who was an attorney for the music festival, and the artist Jason Aldean, uh, who was on stage when the shooting began. And the list goes on. As far as I could tell, looking through some of their Facebook videos posted after the Vegas shooting, the common thread was the most that most of these survivors had mentioned multiple gunmen. So, I mean, where did you get the information about how these people died? Uh, this is just from like lo- local news channels, basically reporting on okay. the deaths. Yeah, th- th- that's legit. Um, they actually did, and those and the people. I especially wanted to look into the car crash one because I was like, "Oh, surely, surely these he, these these can't be a CIA." But yeah, the car veered off the road and exploded. Um, Q goes on. How does this connect to SA? What just happened in SA? So, to the QAnon community, the following narrative is much more widely accepted than the explanation given by the Mockingbird media. Saudi Arabia, as we said before, was in the midst of a massive coup. The young 32-year-old Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had just arrested over 500 Saudis in a sweep after passing a quote-unquote anti-corruption bill. To the QAnon community, the following narrative is much more widely accepted than the explanation given by the Mockingbird media. And it goes a little something like this. Hell-bent on maintaining their power, the Saudi old guard put out a hit on the Crown Prince, who was staying in the top floor of the Four Seasons at the Mandalay Bay. The assassins set a meeting with FBI gunrunner Stephen Paddock. The FBI and federal law enforcement agencies do this all the time. They have an undercover agent sell guns or drugs to bad actors and then they bust them. The Saudi hitmen needed to purchase enough weapons to take on an entire floor of royal security guards armed with God knows what. This is feeling increasingly more like a Liam Neeson film. The meeting took place on the 32nd floor so that the hitmen would only have to ascend one flight, and then, Matrix-style, these two guys were going to mow down the prince's royal guard until they were finally able to get to the prince, killing him and restoring the former ruling class to Saudi Arabia. But something went wrong. The assassins were told that the crown prince was not in the hotel, but rather gallivanting on the Vegas Strip disguised as a tourist playing Baccarat and Kino. Not only that, but he was also tipped off that there was a price on his head. They believed the video of the guy being walked through the floor of the casino was the crown prince in disguise. They were fucked. If they were discovered, not only would they be killed, but those who had hired them would be killed as well. They made a split decision. Kill Paddock and open fire on the crowd below and bring all the attention away from themselves so they could get out undetected. The only account that gives any sort of credence to this whatsoever is from a newly unsealed documents by the Las Vegas Police Department. A handful of officers testified that suspect Stephen Paddock looked like he had been dead for quite some time by the time that SWAT team members burst into the room. Uh, from uh, one officer's testimony, quote, So I, um, I go in there, and um, I could see the suspect laying on the ground, and the blood had started to, uh, started to coagulate by his head. Uh, so it appears that based on the time, I didn't think it, it looked like there was no way that the gunshots that we did from the time frame based on the blood coagulating like they shot him. You know, when I looked at him, I immediately thought to myself, this guy has been dead for more than the time we've been in this room. This contradicts the official debriefing that stated that when the officers breached the room, they observed Paddock raise a gun to his head and pull the trigger. But what happened to the two assassins? How did they escape the room? One anon believes he has the answer. Now the assassins are getting nervous. They realize that someone in the hotel knows that someone is firing. They fire as much as they can. They are thinking as soon as this barrage is done, we run. But the SWAT team starts knocking on the door. Fuck. (laughs) 
the assassins realize they're screwed. Uh, so the first one shoots himself. This is the first of the single shots you hear at the end. I guess he's referring to some sort of audio that was released by the police department. The second assassin isn't so sure. He doesn't want to die. So after 10 seconds of courage gathering, he shoots himself as well. The SWAT team bursts in and finds three bodies. They start asking questions, but because the FBI is already there, uh, parentheses, remember they extracted the prints referring to that video. They take over. They quickly assess the situation. They realize the implications. They remove the two assassins' bodies, take a picture of Paddock lying there, and release it to 4chan to solidify their narrative. Oh my god. Paddock has made the patsy. Why? Because if a failed Saudi assassination attempt was responsible for the deaths, if the FBI, CIA had supplied the guns that killed 58 innocent people, not counting Paddock since he's an asset, then two things would happen. One, we would demand that we go to war with Saudi Arabia. And two, whichever organization that Paddock worked for would be utterly dismantled. Woo, lads. I know. Quite a story. I mean, yeah. Nope. So what do you guys... Just, just no. So, I'm so... This, this whole thing makes me angry. Because fucking so many people died that day. And it's like... Why can't we just face what's wrong here? You know, the, the the fact that this dude could have like 18 bump stock weapons that like fired fucking... He killed so many people. And then the Be reason why he was dead for a while is because they took forever to find him. Because these fucking FBI and all these people, like they weren't prepared. Finally, they got there. But the guy had been firing on the crowd for so long at that point and killed himself already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's all dumb. So you guys, so so you guys don't think, uh, you know, crazy gambler hell bent on murdering concert goers, or an elaborate plot to use the FBI's own weapons to assassinate a rogue crown prince? Yep. So, uh, first. Well, the yeah. reason, yeah, I mean, the reason, the thing is, the reason why they're going here is because Q told them told to. them to. Yeah, because Q doesn't care about people dying like no. he, he thinks it's like a good opportunity and, yeah. and and you think that he would because a lot of people at that as you know like a lot of conservatives who you know who are you know faithful trump supporters would have been at that country music festival i want to die reading this much false information this constructed and just elaborate it's just it just makes me sick because i get that sinking feeling of like oh yeah there's like all these poor people out there like wolf and they're reading this shit and it's fucking yeah. rotting their brains. And yeah. it's convincing them that a lot is at stake and that violence is okay. And this, uh, I, I I got to this thread um, through the popular pro-Trump subreddit, The Donald. Um, so this kind of shit is working its way into oh, yeah. mainstream Trump supporter territory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like the thing is, is the people in the comments are like, man, I think this makes much more sense than, you know, than the explanation sort of that was given to us. Almost sympathetic to it because yeah, the, the idea that a man sort of would just, would just, uh, you know, just go nuts, you know, he's in Las Vegas. So he's just going to go out with like one last thrill with all of his guns. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but it's also, it, probably what what happened just because like because pe people people break do things that don't make sense well yeah and because also, yeah this is how mass killings have happened in the yeah. past where you're like what the fuck yeah. why did they do that i mean they're understand. also they're also ignoring the information that the guy had rented hotels um near other music festivals i mean clearly this yeah. was something that he was he had been trying to set up for a while mm -hmm. yeah there's there's no i mean there's no debate it's false it's a it, it's more of a sign of like how they craft stories and how much they love fucking action movies yeah yeah, yeah really it, it really is and it's, that's that's yeah. what i why i wanted to write it is because that's 
from the from a Q followers perspective, yeah. you know, they see this whole thing unfolding like it's taken for. For them, it goes back to your to your, you know, sort of universal point, Travis, that it's like this is so much more interesting than to just have to deal with like the sadness and like brokenness of like our people. Yeah. And yeah. gun laws. And gun yeah, and gun laws and the United States at large. Yeah, it's, it's 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 more satisfying to think that there's a coherent narrative sort of binding all these crazy things, and th- yeah. there's just there's just mental illness and chaos and horrible things well, going and, on randomly, and it has no meaning. And as yeah. I'm learning, I'm as I'm learning, there's also like I think I think that there's like a bit of racism here that these two Islamic terrorists are so fucking evil that their plan is to murder 58 people. You know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's like a white guy shooting a bunch of country um, music listeners, and you're like, oh, this is definitely about the Arabs. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, at what point is it like pure Americana? How come Saudi Arabia is being accused of all these bizarre things? Well, as usual, the truth is about as awful as the conspiracy theory, and actually, from going through some of your uh, Q claims, Travis, it looks like there's some overlap with reality, as usual. Mm -hmm. I was forced to limit the scope of my inquiry to the last century's geopolitical developments, approximately. I also somewhat focused on Saudi Arabia's relationship with the United States of America, which, of course, is very, very special. With that caveat, let us begin. The guy who founded Saudi Arabia in 1901 was called Abdulaziz Al Saud, and he named himself King, as people do sometimes. <laughs> he enlisted help from the British, or as they're known in the Middle East, vintage Americans, to defend the country from his enemies, the Turks. By 1928, Saudi Arabia was under Abdulaziz's control again, or as they say in the history books, quote, unified. The king began working on getting Saudi Arabia the coveted status of recognized state, which for some strange reason continues to elude the Palestinians today. Britain was down first, as they had been buddies with Saudi Arabia for a little while. The United States took a few years to come around, but in May of 1931, they dutifully extended full diplomatic recognition to Saudi Arabia, an event that by some bizarre cosmic coincidence occurred precisely at the same time as something else. Standard Oil of California was granted a concession by King Abdulaziz, which empowered dozens of squirrely white dudes with monocles to whip out their divining rods and wander the Al-Hasa province, seeking the black gold they all craved. In exchange for the privilege, Standard Oil of California gave the Saudi royal family 35,000 pounds, which is approximately $2.2 million today plus rental fees and royalty payments, which is funny because, you know, they're royals. (laughs) But although the two nations had begun scratching each other's backs, the U.S. didn't want to call it a thing yet, which means that although they had granted Saudi Arabia favored nation status, they didn't send a U.S. ambassador, and their relationship with Saudi Arabia was entirely run by the U.S. delegation in Cairo, Egypt. Clearly, Saudi Arabia was just a side piece for the U.S. Then, in 1938, a magic thing happened. The rotund, monocled, and mustached agents of Standard Oil of California stood above an ocean of oil, watching their little divining rods quiver and quiver. The relationship between the United States of America and Saudi Arabia began looking a little more interesting, now that the U.S. realized what the Saudis were packing. But just as things were looking up for the two countries' relationship, World War II happened. With their new job as saviors of the world, the United States forgot about Saudi Arabia for a little while. The Saudis remained neutral during World War II and let the Allied forces use their airspace, but the sneaky Italians took advantage of the U.S. being busy and bombed an oil installation in the city of Dahran, crippling the country's oil production. This scared the shit out of Abdulaziz Saud, and he grew worried that it would fuck his money up. 
both because oil is a good and valuable drug, but also because every year millions of Muslims traveled to Mecca to complete pilgrimages, and this influx of money was unlikely to continue if, every time the pilgrims looked in the sky, there was a big pizza pie, and it was definitely not a more. Around the same time, the United States <laughs> began realizing that Saudi oil was a super strategic thing to care about. And in 1943, President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared that, quote, the defense of Saudi Arabia is vital to the defense of the United States. That year, a resident ambassador was sent to Saudi Arabia to sweat his balls off, presumably wondering what he'd done to deserve being sent there. Roosevelt began working towards importing more Saudi oil over the next few years. And alongside this, the Americans protected the oil installations and the pilgrim routes. By 1944, the first U.S. consulate was opened in Tehran. In 1945, King Abdulaziz Saud hung out with Roosevelt on the USS Murphy to check out all the sweet guns, plus solidify their friendship in a more photographic and public way. By that point, the two friends knew what kind of benefits they wanted from one another. The U.S. would get a source of consistent cheap oil and a place to project their power into the Middle East, while the Saudis would get military protection from all their fake friends, alongside that oil money, of course. In fact, when Roosevelt met Abdulaziz Saud on the USS Quincy that same year, it was to discuss oil, military stuff, and the potential creation of a Jewish country in what was then the Mandate of Palestine, which is kind of interesting. After World War II ended, I can't remember who won, the U.S. Uh, soon found a new enemy in communism. Their policy of containment involved attempting to stop the spread of the seaward to the Arabian Peninsula, which elevated the need to defend Saudi Arabia and protect it from Soviet influence. Meanwhile, Saudi citizens were tired of seeing U.S. forces running around Tehran, and the anti-Soviet alliance put in place by President Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, included multiple rivals and foes of the Saudi kingdom. So that was starting to piss them off. What's more, old Abdulaziz Saud kicked the bucket in 1953, ceding power to his son, known simply as King Saud. All of this stuff led to October 1955, when Saudi Arabia elected to realign itself with Egypt under President Gamal Abdel Nasser. This meant they were pro-Soviet, and they even replaced the U.S. forces with Egyptian forces. Ouch. Betrayal. The oil kept flowing, though, because nobody wanted to fuck with the money. By that point, Saudi Arabia and Aramco, which monopolized the American side of the Saudi oil operations, had signed a 50-50 deals for all the profits. Still, the Americans were not happy because, you know... They didn't like communism. But this didn't last long. The Israeli, French, and British compact made plans to seize the Suez Canal, and this didn't sit well with Eisenhower and Saud, who suddenly allied themselves again. In the years that followed, Egyptian power declined and U.S.-Saudi relations improved. In 1957, King Saud renewed the U.S. base in Dahran. Then Egypt and Syria reunified, and the Saudi government became pro-Soviet again. Will the betrayals never stop? <laughs> By 1961, King Saud even used take-backsies to renege on his promise to renew the U.S. military base. Then, one year later, the Yemeni revolution occurred, and Saudi Arabia did not like this. They started putting out anti-revolutionary propaganda, and this was cited by Egypt as a reason to attack, which they did from bases in Yemen that same year. Huge bummer for the Saudis, of course, who begged President John F. Kennedy to help. He sent U.S. warplanes in July 1963 to defend against the attacks. Everybody was friends again. Then there was another king swap. Enter King Faisal, brother of King Saud, who in 1964 deposed his brother in a relatively bloodless coup. Of course, America was also changing kings, and what better king is there than Richard Milhouse Nixon? <laughs> Dick almost immediately put in place an aggressive interventionist foreign policy known as the Nixon Doctrine, which posited that America should employ foreign allies to, quote, police American interests in their respective regions. For him, Saudi Arabia was one of the, quote, twin pillars of security in the Middle East, alongside Iran. 
Tensions between Israel and the surrounding Arab states, including the uh, Yom Kippur War, led to King Faisal putting in place an oil embargo on Europe and the Americans because of their aggressively pro-Israel stance. This caused an energy crisis in the U.S., uh, and they subsequently pressured Israel to negotiate with Syria, earning themselves a lift in the embargo by 1974. And this is when the backscratching really started. They signed a massive agreement to expand military and economic cooperation. Soon the U.S. and Saudi Arabia had a $2 billion military contract bundle that included sending 60 fighter jets to the Saudis. The Saudis in turn pressured Iraq and Iran to keep oil prices lower than they might have liked. In 1979, a bunch more fighter jets, F-15s this time, were sent to Saudi Arabia to protect them from the evil communists. Both countries supported the anti-Soviet factions in Afghanistan, one of which later became Al-Qaeda. Mm. After the Cold War ended, the backscratching continued under Reagan, and King Fahd, another of the sons of Abdulaziz, was now big man over on the Saudi side after the assassination of King Faisal. He, he didn't do it. It was some, some random, like son of some other Saudi royal who was then decapitated in the public uh, square. Nice. A hundred billion dollars were transferred from Saudi Arabia to the U.S. during that period. In exchange, the Saudis got military bases, oil infrastructure, naval ports, F-15 warplanes, M1 Abrams main battle tanks, and more guns and bombs than any little boy could dream of. The whole U.S. approach was to arm and train the Saudi military so they could fight the Shiites in the region, who had grown more powerful after the Iranian Revolution. Well, all the training finally paid off when George Bush Sr.'s Gulf War kicked off in 1990. The Americans sent half a million soldiers to Saudi Arabia to protect them and 100,000 to fight in Kuwait, generally using Saudi Arabia as a launching pad to repel and crush the Iraqis, who were attempting an invasion of Kuwait over, you guessed it, oil. Uh, funny little story here. Apparently, Saddam was hanging out with the American ambassador the day before the invasion, and they kind of floated the possibility of like this conflict with Kuwait. And apparently what she said was, well, the U.S. will not intervene about any Arab-Arab conflicts. Now, Saddam read that as go ahead. Right. Which obviously fucked him pretty bad. But uh, the ambassador later claimed that she had, there were, was context in the conversation and that she had made it clear in the context that he shouldn't invade. It doesn't. Was weird. But they it might was have weird. basically just kind of told him to go told ahead him and to do, do it, it. Wow. and then said, we up. didn't say that. Yeah, no, wait, no. It sounds like something That's America horrifying. would do. Yeah. So it's the weird, like, one bad passing conversation mm -hmm. just fuck up the entire region. Absolutely. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what Saddam says the conversation was about because he's the enemy now. So it's yeah. like, you know, America can be like, Oh no! Well, we never, we, we never suggested. We, we what, the context of the we would never back an invasion. They're like, they're like a fucking like somebody arguing on Reddit. They're like, oh well, if you had actually looked at the context of my post, yeah, you would not... see that. Yeah. After the Gulf War, the U.S. kept five thousand troops stationed in Saudi Arabia and worked with the royal family to protect the oil routes in the Persian Gulf by using the U.S. Fifth Fleet. There was a no-fly zone in southern Iraq as well, and the U.S. also defended that. Then. 9-11 happened. Terrorist attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. Nearly 3,000 victims. All of this carried out by a group of 19 men who hijacked multiple planes. Now, Osama bin Laden was Saudi, and 15 of the hijackers were Saudi. This did not look good for the two regimes, who had been having a gun, bomb, and oil party for decades. <laughs> In fact, from the outside, it seemed pretty clear that U.S. foreign policy, as well as that of the Saudi royal family, was responsible for funding the anti-Soviet group in Afghanistan that became Al-Qaeda, which in turn carried out the 9-11 attacks. And it's also pretty clear that enough Saudi citizens, bin Laden included, were pissed off enough to murder thousands. 
But you might say, isn't that only the case for terrorists and those of their ilk? Well, not so. In 2001, not long after 9-11, when the Americans were being showered with compassion in the international press, a survey taken by Saudi intelligence service, and I mean, this might be false, but this is what it stated. It stated that it had uh, polled uh, educated Saudis between the ages of 25 and 41, and 95% of those supported bin Laden's cause of getting the Americans out of the Middle East. That is after 9-11. So this does not excuse his crimes, but it does show the level of animosity many Middle Easterners had towards the United States' aggressively interventionist foreign policy in the decades leading up to 9-11. Soon after, the United States press and its president, George W. Bush, began using the term Islam and Islamic in their criticism of terrorism. This was a bizarre choice since they'd been intervening in the region and killing, quote, Islamic people for decades, but had never really emphasized the religious side of the equation. In 2002, the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations Terrorist Financing Task Force Jesus. report claimed that, quote, for years, individuals and charities based in Saudi Arabia have been the most important source of funds for al-Qaeda. And for years, Saudi officials have turned a blind eye to this problem. Whether this is true or not, the United States trained and armed multiple factions and nations in the Middle East, one of which became al-Qaeda, and then they continued to try to project power into the region by military means, feeling to many of those populations as foreign aggressors, invaders, and occupiers. I mean, imagine if Nebraska was suddenly a no-fly zone and Saudi troops, planes, and weapons appeared. What if they were used on the local population to maintain control of the region? At what point would the United States feel like it was time for the Saudis to go home? Or maybe get angry at the government for letting it happen as part of a, quote, cooperation deal. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. You can, anytime you try to apply American foreign policy back onto America, you're <laughs> yeah. just like, oh, that's preposterous. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking insane. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we'll have a German military base just hanging out here in, like, fucking Ohio, where they get to just, like, do their own shit on our territory. It's like, what the fuck? Um, shortly after the attacks, Crown Prince Abdullah said the following. A time comes when peoples and nations part. We are at a crossroads. It is time for the United States and Saudi Arabia to look at their separate interests. Those governments that don't feel the pulse of their people and respond to it will suffer the fate of the Shah of Iran. Now, I have to say, this actually sounds really sensible. Uh, a lot more sensible than Saudi Prince Nayef bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, who claimed that the Saudi 9-11 hijackers were dupes in a Zionist plot. If he's still alive, he's probably QAnon. <laughs> but governments traditionally only listen to their people temporarily, if at all. And so the Saudis bought in on the war on terror, which involved invading and or bombing the shit out of several Middle Eastern countries. Iraq, of course, but also Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, etc. The weapons that had been poured in for all of those years were now often being used by factions opposing the American and Saudi side. The U.S. helped the Saudi intelligence get their act in gear, and this helped arrest and imprison or kill many terrorist leaders. But simultaneously, terrorist attacks multiplied everywhere, including on Saudi targets. The war on terror was just getting humming. And what's funny is that uh, apparently by 2006, the 2001 opinion that the Saudis had, which was basically bin Laden was right, started changing because they were getting fucked over. So you can see how trauma can actually, like force you to reconsider suddenly but it's not a good thing it's like oh now terrorism is everywhere so now everyone feels like the war on terror is good so now maybe americans are good it's just it's all such a fucking mess basically don't pour bombs or weapons into anywhere unless you want it to become a fucking dead deadly murderous <laughs> mess um so in the spirit of their history things continue to be weird for the u.s saudi relations after that in 2010, WikiLeaks released a memo by Hillary Clinton in which she linked Saudi Arabian donors to Sunni terrorist organizations, which she accused of using charities as fronts for their activities. 
President Barack Obama actually expanded the arms sales to Saudi Arabia to a record volume. After the Saudis began bombing their least favorite factions in the Yemeni civil war, Obama intervened to keep a Yemeni journalist in prison for the sole crime of reporting that Obama had begun secretly bombing Yemen with U.S. weapons, specifically that he had authorized a 2009 cluster bomb strike that killed three dozen Yemeni women and children. Obama greenlit quasi-daily bombings in Yemen after that. The funny thing is, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which are the purported target, are actively fighting al-Qaeda. This means that the United States is currently acting as air support for al-Qaeda in Yemen, often with faulty Saudi Arabian intelligence calling the shots. Fucking cool. In Very cool. <laughs> so fucking cool. Very cool, Julian. Goddamn cool. Uh, in 2015, the Saudis and the Americans were up to their old tricks again, funneling weapons to Syrian rebels during a CIA-led covert operation called Timber Sycamore. This was facilitated by then-CIA director John, John Brennan, Brennan, who expanded the collaboration with the Saudis um, for decades, by the way, before that, and is now a talking head on MSNBC representing the awesome liberal media. Very cool. So fucking cool. Uh, the operation in question delivered 500 U.S.-made TOW anti-tank missiles and trained and armed the anti-Assad rebels. There are reports that some of these ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. History is just a beautiful thing. It's just such a, an elegant circle. Uh, and then 2016 happened to America. The great populist and anti-establishment president Donald Bernie Bro Trump took power, <laughs> and it looked like maybe things would change. Nah. Trump sold apartments to the Saudi royal family multiple times. In fact, MBS has brazenly stated, and this was caught by a journalist, that Jared Kushner was in his pocket. Who can forget Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia where he made ritualistic love to that weird glowing orb? <laughs> Trump then continued what all of his predecessors had done by selling weapons to the Saudis even more than Obama, who had set a record already. He organized a 2017 arms deal, uh, one which was opposed by anybody who'd opened a history book. The deal went through anyways and the war on the Yemeni people waged by Saudi Arabia with U.S. weapons and U.S. backing continues to this day. Graphic reports of school buses full of children blown to smithereens with, quote, smart bombs. It's estimated the death toll in Yemen is nearing 100,000. Children being pulled out from rubble in Syria. It's hard to estimate the full human cost of the Syrian civil war, but most place it above 500,000 people. And these numbers, obscured by lack of media interest and purposefully opaque policies, continue to rise. Speaking of death toll, a new king came to Saudi Arabia and he was massively involved in starting, defending, and escalating the Yemeni intervention. His name, of course, is King Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. He took power by way of a purge set up by his father, who was still king at the time, that rounded up 10 princes and 38 others, businessmen, media figures, and royal family members that MBS didn't think would play nice. The arrests supposedly were the result of a, quote, high committee on fighting corruption. So, why isn't the West calling him a dictator? Well, MBS pumped millions of dollars into the Western press, giving birth to dozens of articles touting him as a, quote, reformist. During his 2017 tour, MBS famously took credit for considering a law that would allow women to drive in Saudi Arabia for the first time. Note, many of the women who fought for the right to drive in Saudi Arabia are now disappearing or being forced into exile. MBS organized a press event to announce the passing of the new law, broadcasting it simultaneously in Saudi Arabia and the USA. Before the event, the female activists were all warned by the government to stay silent surrounding the event. He didn't want them to get any credit for it, nor to validate activism as a method. Classic. New York Times writer and cosmic dunce Tom Friedman didn't just call MBS a reformer. He clamored after his visit to Riyadh that, quote, Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring 
had finally arrived. Never mind that Saudi Arabia worked against the Arab Spring in Egypt, or that the Arab Spring wasn't the work of a spoiled monarchist dictator. MBS was also received for a dinner by the owner of the Washington Post. Democracy dies in darkness indeed. This, by the way, was a long time after the war on Yemen had been launched by then-defense minister MBS while his dad was still king. There's no fucking excuse. You're not fucking journalist. You are the same people who supported the Iraq war. You're not progressives. You're not good at your job. And you're not even fucking smart. Undoubtedly, many of you were paid by MBS handsomely to become his unrepenting sandwich boards. Shame on you. Oh, and if you're British and you care about England, the Tories also took tons of NBS money recently, and you're also selling them weapons, and you should be similarly ashamed. Same with France. In fact, Macron recently applauded NBS for, quote, opening his country and supporting a moderate Islam. This was 2017, and he was making this statement about a guy who at the time had, one, actively courted war with Iran and described their leader as Hitler in the press— Two, launched a horrifying war on Yemen, purposefully halting humanitarian aid to the poorest country in the region and pushing by UN estimates 7 million people into famine while worsening a cholera epidemic that has infected nearly a million people, even though it's a fucking medieval disease. He did that by closing all of the different ports of entry. The UN uh, obviously was not happy and yeah, he was purposefully starving the people. Uh, three, he blockaded uh, their supposed ally, Qatar, which was a fucking weird move, such a... It, stupid power play. Four, he systematically murdered or imprisoned journalists, opposing politicians and activists. And five, astonishingly, he kidnapped two foreign leaders. He kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon while he was fucking visiting Saudi Arabia and kept them there for months under a bizarre form of house arrest until finally sheepishly releasing him back to Lebanon, uh, I assume with better policies. Jesus. He also did the same thing to the Yemeni president, keeping him, and in this case, his entire family and most of the administration under house arrest in Saudi Arabia until he saw fit to release them when, you know, he had done whatever he wanted to do. So, I mean, is there no depth to the Western power's hypocrisy? Well, let's see if there is by talking about a man named Jamal Khashoggi. Jamal was a Saudi Arabian journalist and citizen who for many years worked as advisor to the royals and wrote for Al-Watan, a national newspaper. Then, echoing the American never-Trumpers, he balked at MBS's recklessness, violence, and egomania. He published an article called, quote, I am Saudi, but I am different, that encouraged Saudi Arabia to stop oppressing minorities, silencing journalists, and promoting non-diversity of opinion. The crown was not impressed, and Jamal was swiftly banned from writing altogether. This caused him to bail on Saudi Arabia and move to the United States, where he was hired by the Washington Post. His articles for the Post compared MBS to Putin and argued that he was worse than anything Saudi Arabia had seen before, specifically in terms of repression. On October 2, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul, Turkey. What happened next, nobody is 100% clear on. There are reports of a 15-man Saudi team, including like some forensics doctor that was flown in just for that, torturing him while Saud al-Qahtani, one of MBS's closest advisors, was piped in over Skype to lead the interrogation, allegedly saying, quote, bring me the head of the dog. They then apparently killed and dismembered him with a bone saw, burying his remains in the Saudi consul's backyard. His remains have actually been found in the Saudi backyard. That's not even a claim. 
In the aftermath, some random chubby guy, presumably a body double, was captured on camera walking out of the embassy in part of Khashoggi's clothes. I'm assuming the rest was too blood covered. Covered in blood. The slain journalist's son, Salah Khashoggi, was then forced to take a press photo with MBS, presumably to give the impression that the Saudi king wasn't responsible for killing Jamal. Reminder, Salah Khashoggi is currently not allowed to leave Saudi Arabia. He's essentially a hostage being forced to take photos with his father's alleged murderer. Very cool. Fucking cool. The Turkish authorities claim to have a tape that recorded the entire ordeal, presumably because they're bugging the Saudi embassy for their own political game. The tape has not been released. MBS has been on a cleanup tour, including a mock trial of a group of his subordinates who he claims acted without his knowledge. But since he's a fucking psycho, I'm not sure if he's just going to sacrifice his people at the altar of his own innocence. Uh, but, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. We'll see. And, uh, boys, that's what I got on Saudi Arabia. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. I'm so... I, I feel like... Um... I feel like I'm coming down from uh, some really bad ecstasy. Yeah, I don't feel yeah. good at all. In the middle of that, I got so furious. How do we come out of this episode feeling like there's any reason to live? That's that's going to be the, the sole role of Felix Biederman, who better bring the jokes. Yes. Yeah. Because I want to fucking die too. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not red pilled on Saudi Arabia, but I am pretty black pilled. It's it's pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, I am. I don't even know what to say about it. Like you know, I mean, it, it's consistent with other foreign policies that we've seen in in South America, like uh, we, we've examined on other episodes. But to really understand um, the role of Saudi Arabia and the role of Israel, two states that were basically installed and armed and and kind of like co-developed by the United States military and United States intelligence and to see how those countries are so systematically embroiled in just like genocide and fucking bombing people it's so fucking depressing it makes me really you know think about this idea that the middle east is chaotic or that um you know I'll often hear the argument that these arab states would be fighting each other uh, if this wasn't the case. And it's like, well, actually, if you look back, Saudi Arabia was founded in the 20th century. It was founded in mm -hmm. 1901. By the time it st stabilized, it was already having interventions by the British to help them uh, gain control. The Saudi state, it was created by Western uh, it, you know, influences. And yeah. America was involved by 45, you know? So it's like... Oil. Oil. They want oil. that oil. They want to drink that milkshake. They want the fucking money. They want yeah. the money of selling the weapons. They want the money for the oil. They want control. Sorry, I was reading this awful statistic that the United States currently runs operations and like has people uh, kind of intervening in 70% of the world's nations. So if you're in that 30%, like consider yourself lucky. I yeah. guess your country's so fucked up. The the Americans, you're not on the radar yet. Yeah, you've got nothing of value to us. <laughs> Don't, if you ever find anything nice... Don't yeah, show yeah, don't, anybody. Yeah, don't don't post any pictures on social media. Never, yeah, never. Don't tweet yeah. about it. Act like you just robbed a bank. Like pretend you're not rich. Yeah. For years. Yeah. Or maybe forever. Forever. Don't get their attention. Don't shine anything towards the sky. There's probably drones looking. Yeah. Just hide in a hole in the ground like Saddam did. That ended up just great for him. <laughs> yeah, we recorded that uh that entire script. Uh, before this and we're all fucking thoroughly depressed perfect yeah american saudi arabia together always make a nice nice yeah, it's like the nice best part coitus. of waking up is oil in your cup best part of waking up is khashoggi got cut up <laughs> <laughs>
We are now joined by Felix Biederman, co-host of the Chapo Trap House podcast, co-author of Fighting in the Age of Loneliness, an MMA documentary, and Saudi Arabia-loving Bon Vivant, who is known to smoke a pipe or two. Welcome, Felix. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. We knew that when we were planning a Saudi Arabia episode, you had to be the man on it. Um, because you seem like a huge Saudi Arabia stan. How did that come to pass? You know, I, I, I think like a lot of people who were sort of coming of age during like 9-11 in the Bush years, there was like a bizarre fascination with seeing pictures of the Saudis you know, holding hands with Bush, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. It was very it was very odd to, like, be in middle school and then to be in, like, sort of junior high, you know, slash, like, freshman year times in your life. Re, like, you, that's when you first start taking, like, modern European history and shit, right? And you, you, you read this amazing, like, court intrigue about uh, monarchies, you read about the benevolent monarchs, you read about the Habsburgs, you read about Charles V, the greatest baller in European history. <laughs> and it's very sexy. Like, it's very, I mean, as sexy as it can being about, like, just totally disgusting inbred freaks, right? Yeah. But it's very, it's very interesting. It's very, it is sexy in a way, right? Yeah. And you sort of compare it to the staid boringness of your contemporary time. You know, Harry Reid as Senate Minority Leader. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is like, I kind of want to escape into that, especially if you were like a, you know, a teenage lib as I was. Uh, but then you see you're just inundated with these pictures of Bush holding hands, <laughs> having these very weird uh, closed off meetings with uh, an absolute monarch, right? Like not just this thing, because you know about ceremonial monarchs. This is an absolute monarch, mm -hmm. an absolutely powerful monarch. And I think it just kind of fascinated me. It, it was it was so different from the current events that were otherwise that you otherwise had access to. And it started out it started out as like a lib thing. You're just basically a little kid, and you're you're just so mad at Bush all the time, and you're trying to find a way to like get him. And it's like, ooh, you hold, hold you say you're gonna you say you're against nine eleven, but you held hands with a Muslim. Like you you just dumb. You can't figure it out because you're like twelve. And it's kind of like a precursor to uh, the the orb, and and also a precursor yeah. to like the kind of uh, Trump and Putin are gay. Like this this kind of childish. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like seeing seeing a bunch of grown men like grown men like gathered around like putting their hands on a crystal ball. Uh, is just uh, it's a very interesting image. What to, they have a Tupperware club? They were doing a seance. <laughs> From there, I got very, just very interested in it, and I also I had an, I had an existing interest in like the Ottomans, because uh, my mom got me like very much into Napoleon when I was a kid, and I read about the Battle of Acre, which is an insane battle because it was. Uh, Napoleon fighting against the uh, Ottomans, who he had the utmost respect for. He said they fought like demons, and I thought that was, you know, because I thought Napoleon was like just the biggest fucking baller in the world. It's like who would who would he let logically like be afraid of? And it's like no, these guys were 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 ferocious. And then yeah, I guess from there I just got like so, sort of like generalized, very amateur interest in the Middle East that has continued to this day. Uh, despite no, uh, one aborted effort to learn Arabic before realizing that part of my brain is just cemented over forever. And the best <laughs> I can ever do with languages from now on is just awful Castilian yeah. Spanish. But 
I've always like cringed when people call me an expert because I'm so fucking not. I don't speak the language. I've never been there or any Middle Eastern country. I'm the least expert person, you know. I'm just a guy with a lot of free time. <laughs> Wait, no, um, no, like high school trip to Israel for like birthright or any of that shit. I've never, I've never been on birthright. I've never been on birthright. I think I got like a year left before I can do it. If yeah. uh, anyone, if anyone wants to uh, go fund me the plane ticket, <laughs> I'm Damn. kidding. I would get it myself. I'm not going to do it before anyone gets mad at me. I'm not going to do birthright, okay? But uh... <laughs> My parents made me go in high school, and it just so happened that the age group that I went with, there were no other American kids. So it was like me and like 15 Israelis. I came back that, awesome. I came back that summer wearing like tight, real tight black jeans and like, a, <laughs> and like kind of a shimmery tank. So my parents were like, what the fuck? Well, you got back and tried to hang out with your friends. You were like, hey, can we get into a shoving match at a restaurant (laughs) called, like, Burger Party? Can we do an abortive ecstasy deal in Lebanon? They're like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) Hells, yeah. All right, so uh, QAnon often portrays Saudi Arabia as pulling the world's strings. Uh, Do you think there's any truth to that claim? Uh, No, I would not say that. Uh, (laughs) But, okay, so I guess to answer the question, what is the extent of the control they've exhibited? I mean... Control over their citizens, for sure. Uh, you know, control over their side and their incursion into Yemen. Control over whatever rebel groups they funded in Syria, specifically. And control over some things in the uh, in politics in their region of the world in general. Yeah. The answer, you know, like the humongous series of loans they gave Egypt. But there is, I think there is this tendency among QAnon people and again, and with people who have sort of like a better their hearts in a better place, right, in America. People who are, like, don't really know what they are but are trending towards some sort of left populist thing, but they they say, they say put things in the terms of, like, it's Israel is controlling America or, like, Saudi Arabia or, like, the Rothschilds, when really it's just, like, America. America's, like, America's doing it. We're doing it because we want to do it. And it's more like, you know, obviously these countries are imperial proxies if you look at it through the lens of capital and... uh power relations but i think i think with most people even if you are your heart is getting in that right place you are generally going to think that it's a nefarious foreign influence that we at in our heart of hearts this country could never be so evil right yeah but you right. know it's not them pulling the strings on us for sure they absolutely lobby our government and they, their lobbyists absolutely accomplish things that are definitely more favorable to them than to normal people. Yes, absolutely. But in if you're going to look at the power relation between the states, it is not that our state is subservient to them. Absolutely not. Right. And so, but do you think a foreign policy in the United States is being shaped by Saudi Arabia? No, no, I think it's being shaped by America. I mean, I think that a lot of think tanks in uh dc are shaped by their donors and those donors often turn out to be either Qatar or saudis or the uae or whomever but in general if it's a mainstream uh foreign policy think tank its goals are going to be in line with the goals of the american empire right Mm, yeah money right (laughs) corporate all care corporations care about is money man yeah money oil power that's right <laughs> yeah the, the the triple pillars of the middle east um 
So you've read all the Saudi royal diaries, uh, you know, when they are alone in their bedroom and, and they, they put their little legs up on and they lay on their stomachs and they're writing in there and you found all those diaries and you read them all. Uh, what's the weirdest story that you've come across? Um, weirdest? I mean, so much of it is like totally unsubstantiated, right? Because you there's a lot you want to believe, but it's like there's so much intrigue that you're like, okay, how much of this is just one guy that hated another guy? Because of, you know, he took a slave from him or something. Asinine thing. <laughs> yeah, they just had this decades-long grudge. So, But I, I think some of the more substantiated stuff is... It's not as sexy, but it's always interesting to me. Like, the famous thing about King Saud. Uh, one of the kings who didn't... I think the only king who did not serve out his full term. He left before he died. He was a complete alcoholic, right? And... When, like, American oil executives were doing business with him, they noticed that he kept bottles and bottles, like, all his empties under his bed to hide that he was an alcoholic. And this, had a roommate like this, that uh, this incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful absolute monarch was just acting like a teenage boy, right? <laughs> he was hiding all his empties in there. And that always, that always stuck with me. He's like yeah. Leahy from Trailer Park Boys, just being like, "I swear to God, Randy, I'm off the liquor." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, here, but here's one. Here's my favorite one of all time, and this is completely unsubstantiated. This is substantiated in absolutely nothing, but it's my favorite, and it is that Saad Hariri, the uh, prime minister of Lebanon, the guy who got kidnapped, right? If you right. guys remember that. That he, his, fa his father, Rafi Kariri, the Lebanese politician and media magnate, he went to Saudi Arabia to make his fortune, as a lot of a lot of people from the Levant did. And the legend that I heard that has just no factual backing to it, but I ch sometimes choose to believe because it's fun. Uh, it sounds like somebody else we know on the podcast. <laughs> Me. Part of the deal. Uh, for you know this guy who came there to the country with essentially nothing and left a billionaire magnate was that it was that uh, Prince Abdullah made a deal with Hariri that he could impregnate his wife. <laughs> what? <laughs> and he would Hariri would essentially raise this uh, bastard child as his own, and that child is Saad. Again, this has no basis. In fact, the only basis is is that. Saad and Derry Seven, the sons of the fa most favored wife of Ibn Saad, they have the same weak no chin. That's it. <laughs> oh my god, that is QAnon shit. Yeah, it's like the uh, like the Podesta, the John Podesta, uh, Chester Benningfield, where they think that um, Chester Benningfield is Podesta's like uh, like illegitimate son. Mm-hmm. And he found out that his dad was like eating people, and that's why he killed himself. See, that's about as far as I heard. I, I uh, it's one of those times I really wish I knew any fucking Arabic at all because uh, I'd like to delve deeper into this one because it's so interesting, and it's like you could definitely believe that like a uh, uh, Saudi royal would be depraved enough to do something like that, and someone like Saad Hariri would be enough of a scumbag to be like, all right, fine, I'll do it. I want it that fucking bad. I want this so bad. But I, I, I think it's interesting, right? I think it's there's an interesting crossover with QAnon, right? Because it's like a lot of the QAnon shit is so patently fucking stupid, like that they they have to sacrifice these children so they can get yeah. the best drug known to man, but. 
it's also like you would believe that a lot of these guys would do it. Like, okay, who's that guy? Ed Case, the California Democrat. Oh, oh, oh uh, Ed Buck. God. Ed Buck, Ed Buck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, oh. if that was a thing that you could kill people to get this amazing drink, he would do, that guy would do that. And so would yeah, a lot of these people. I believe that, like, maybe Tony Podesta would do it. I believe that, you know? Yeah. But it's just so patently ridiculous. But there's a kernel of truth in that I believe that this person is capable of doing this if this were a real thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's so. That's why they're so attractive, right? But they're always short-sighted. They're always short-sighted because, you know, as you guys know, our elites are better than theirs. Our elites would never do this. But yeah, yeah, they never would. Yeah. <laughs> so, who is your favorite king, and why? I think, uh, I think, like the most interesting one. Uh, because he was like possibly the smartest one they've ever had was King Faisal. Mm -hmm. He was uh, he was the mind behind the oil embargo of the seventies. Yeah, he was responsible for a lot of modernization in the kingdom. He was he was actually he was incredibly smart. He was an incredibly smart guy. He saw the way the world was going. He engineered uh, the Saudi ownership of a lot of Aramco, their national oil company. Uh, he modernized a ton of stuff in the kingdom, education, infrastructure. He was brilliant. He was, he was obviously like kind of a bad guy, right? But very, very, very different from his, uh, his predecessors and those who came before him. And he, he was also, he's also responsible for one of the worst things that happened in the country, which was what ended up happening to the education system. So as, he wanted to modernize so much, and he wanted to actually put women in school. But uh, religious hardliners despised that. So his deal, one part of his deal was like, okay, if you let me do this, I will staff the schools with Muslim Brotherhood hardliners from Egypt. <laughs> wow. They're like, okay, that's good enough for us. And wouldn't you know it, the consequence was the generation that came after, you know, the sort of boomers was significantly more religious than them mm. they were significantly more fundamentalist and so i mean even as such a smart guy it was very short-sighted and he of course he was uh killed he was killed uh by a by a prince because the prince's brother was killed during a protest and he blamed uh Faisal for it yeah oh damn but Faisal Faisal did a lot of stuff that was smarter than he, there are a lot of little things he did that were quite smart. One of the things that King Faisal did was he met with Malcolm X when Malcolm X took the Hajj hmm. in 1964. Yeah. And that is what an incredibly shrewd move. Now, right? the Hajj is the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, an incredibly shrewd move. I mean, Faisal was, I think he was more aware of the the kingdom's roles imperial proxy mm. i think a lot of uh, most of them are probably aware but i think he he resented it a lot more than the others because he he took the most dramatic action against the west in the uh, oil embargo yeah but yeah wow okay well who's your least favorite king and why i mean they're just all equally like sort of repulsive right <laughs> i don't think you can really really say one's that much worse than the other uh i mean solomon solomon is funny because he clearly has just advanced dementia uh, but I don't know how much you can hate him, really. I, I mean, Abdullah, Abdullah was one of the most sort of into being a Western proxy that you can be and one of the last sort of shrewd, clever ones. Uh, Khalid, who came after Faisal, was, he was sort of like a moral coward who was afraid to continue a lot of the good things that Faisal did. 
was responsible for the continue. He, he sort of empowered a lot of extremists, which ended up being a horrible legacy for the country and later the world. I mean, they're they're just all bad. They're all bad. Uh, I don't yeah. think I don't know how much worse yeah. one is than the other. I think when you put King in front of anybody, they they just have a propensity. But some of them make <laughs> lovely gardens or whatever. They they anytime somebody is King, it, it, I don't know. Maybe they you have a propensity to kind of fuck shit up. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of good ones. Weird, because mo- monarchy seems like a cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it's the same thing, right? When you when you study like. European history, right? It's like you, after a while, hopefully you come away with the conclusion that everyone's kind of bad, but you have guys that you kind of like because they got a little more like panache than other guys. Like, yeah. yeah. Charles V, Carlos I, is like awful piece of shit, right? Like any monarch. At least he's inter- at least he went for it. He left everything out on the field, yeah. huh? He tried to he tried he he told Martin Luther, come to a conference. Let's do a conference. Let's do a theological debate. And his whole plan was just to fucking kill him with a sword when he got there. What a guy. What a fucking guy. Yeah. Oh that that reminds me actually, uh, the thing that like launched that huge uh, hundred year war between the French and the English was a similar thing where they were supposed to meet on this weird, like neutral thing on a bridge and the, and the, and the, the Dauphin had built like a fucking secret passage. And basically when the guy kneeled to say hello, they in- instantly decapitated <laughs> him. And then they rushed in with all the guard, like just a fucking absolute disaster. Nobody's good. And then, of course, it led to a hundred years of war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, was it Trotsky who said that uh, Cromwell was like a class ally? <laughs> yeah, that's. A- but it's like I'm willing to hear that argument because, yeah, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, Trotsky or uh, Cromwell was so bad to the Irish. But it's like everyone was so bad to everyone <laughs> you know you know yeah historically people are good like by mistake exactly <laughs> well Cromwell strikes me as a guy who thought he was being but you know because as being a, a product of his time is like oh yeah you just kill these people right that's what you do with them it's like that great quote from Futurama where Bender like finds himself like in the middle of the galaxy talking to God who's just a giant computer and and the computer basically says Anytime you've done the right thing, no one's sure you've done anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Sunni and, and Shia conflicts are along religious lines, but today the West seems to have difficulty understanding power and conflict uh, if it isn't along national lines or at least military and territorial lines. So I have a few questions surrounding the topic, but first, can you quickly explain the difference between the Sunni and the Shia and uh, like how recently the conflict has existed? You know, historical reason for it is a debate over the succession of uh, Muhammad after his death, whether whether it goes with Abu Bakr or Ali, and the Shia are with Ali, and the Sunni are with uh, Abu Bakr. It, you know, goes on to this day, but I would say some of it is religious, but a lot of it that we see is just, a lot of it is nationalism, and a lot of it is different concepts of what political Islam is. Mm-hmm. So the most powerful Shia state in the world, obviously, is Iran. And I think that Iran is particularly frightening to people because it's the world's first successful iteration of political Islam. Like, like I, you could argue this, uh, that Saudi Arabia maybe is, but it's just buttressed by seemingly endless supplies of money and American power. Whereas yeah. Iran, not bu- buttressed by any of that. And I want, I want to be clear. I would not like to live in Iran. I don't think that's a good place to live. Mm-hmm. I would not like to live under... <laughs> 
even uh, revolutionary political Islam. I'm sorry. Yeah, the internet speed's probably bad too. Everything, but it, it is definitely a, I think, a more sustainable and successful system than other iterations of it that we've seen. But a lot of it, a lot of it also is just you know the conflict that you get between states, territorial conflicts between Sunni and Shia states. But there are individual tribal differences you get on the smaller scale, like you would get in Iraq. But yeah, runs the, runs the gamut. <laughs> that's 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 your that's your very stupid answer. <laughs> runs the gamut. And so that's my very dumb answer. So Saudi Arabia uh, would be uh, Sunni aligned. Yes. And then what what about um, the neighboring countries, Lebanon, Jordan, UAE? You know, Sunni Sunni of course is not a monolith. Uh, Qatar, Qatar is a politically dominated by Sunnis, but they, of course, have their have massive issues with the Saudis and UAE. And part of that, you know, part of that, it has more to do with money than religion. Uh, they share a huge, huge natural gas field with Iran. They're very close to Iran in geographical proximity. And so they do, and their their modus operandi is sort of to play both sides always. Um, even though they are, you know, ostensibly the same religious group right. as the Saudis, they're now hated enemy. Uh, same with Tur- Turkey. Turkey is Sunni, but they've, they've had numerous issues with the Saudis and continued. They sort of, Erdogan specifically plays this very weird two-faced game with them. Yeah, to break it down, to break it down is just religion. Uh, these national and ethnic and uh, economic slash political conflicts is just religious. Is it's never right, you know? Yeah, fair. And so, what about Wahhabism? I've heard you talk about that a little bit. Could you explain what it is and how it interacts with the Sunni and Shia belief systems and interests? Wahhabism, I think, is the closest thing to. Uh, Calvinism <laughs> in Islam. Then Wahhab, who existed in sort of pre-modern kingdom Saudi Arabia, got exiled from his village for stoning too many women to death. Not, <laughs> but like just too many by the standards of you know like eighteenth, eighteenth yeah. century, eighteenth century, yeah, uh, pre-kingdom. I generally try to be careful about making these analogies because nothing ever is one to one, and you can very carelessly make these, uh, but. Generally, if you look at the relationship between clergy and lay people or their equivalents, uh, the Shia the Shia concept of it would be more analogous to Eastern Orthodox or uh, Catholicism, and the Sunni concept of it would be more Protestant, mm. uh, which is mm-hmm. to say that the Sunni idea is that like it's more like okay, it's just your relationship with God, whereas the Shia have more. They seem to there seems to be a little bit more of a religious. Tr- uh, literature, literary tradition, and uh, more emphasis on the ordainment of religious scholars and authorities. Right. Uh, and I think this this comparison kind of it it goes deeper uh, with Wahhabism, the most severe form of sort of fundamentalist Sunni Islam, being the closest to Calvinism, the most severe form of fundamentalist Protestantism. Uh, where, right, the, the, the clergy, it's not as supremely important as your personal piety, but the most important thing, just like the most important thing in Calvinism, what Calvinism always 
and the severe Protestantism just in general always devolves into is the hunt for heretics because it's, it, it can't continue on its own. It's so dour and joyless and shitty that the only thing you could do to retain people is to just have a never ending hunt for heretics and non-believers and, and, and Satanists and, and horrors and gay people and whatever. And that's, I think is the closest analog because there is a huge feature of heretic hunting in Wahhabism. So would you consider the Saudi crown Wahhabists, and would you consider bin Laden uh, to, to have been a Wahhabist? I mean, the Saudi crown, who knows, actually? Who, know, who knows who's a true believer and who's just sort of cynically exploiting it? I don't know if I would think King Abdullah was a true believer, nor King Khalid. King Fahd, who knows, he was also afflicted with severe dementia, for a lot of the time, he was thrust out into the open world. Faisal, I think, undoubtedly was a true believer. Bin Laden, yeah, true believer. Bin Laden, I mean, yeah, Bin, La Bin Laden, I don't think, don't think you can argue he was faking it, no matter what you say about him. <laughs> I don't, I don't think he was faking. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think of MBS? Like, do you, do you think he's different? He's doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> what if that was just my entire conclusion yeah and in general he's just he's doing his best dude that sounds a lot like uh thomas friedman is he different than his predecessors and how so if if, if you think so. he's a lot more reckless that's the main thing uh yeah the saudi invasion and war in yemen it's previous monarchs would have never done that because it's not the saudi style the style is that you have this never-ending supply of money and resources and you have this never-ending supply of angry young men who are raised severely religiously and pissed off and to hunt for heretics and you can send them to any part of the world with any amount of money to fight against any of your regional or global enemies yep. you know as they as they did in afghanistan as they did in uh the balkans as they did in a lot of places um and that was that was to sort of that's what they had instead of a traditional military, because a nation like Saudi Arabia does not have a modern military. It has an internal protection racket. That's the thing they're best at. It's sort mm -hmm. of like Brazil in this in this respect, in that their military is very bad at fighting wars, but it's great at just inflicting terror on people in your country. Yeah. But just a wretched fighting force. <laughs> because why would it be? Like there was never there was never an it was inconceivable that they would. Go to go in a direct war with another country. It made no sense, especially like having so so much an American military presence there. Yeah, but uh, you know the military is just it's just something you sort of you you just do over there. Like <laughs> you're you're bored, or you you know you're middle class and you want some sort of advancement, yeah. or you're. You're like uh, you're sort of lower aristocracy. You could go to the cavalry, which nowadays is being in the air force. Yeah, it's like Call of Duty for these guys. It's like you know the internet speeds are shitty, and they probably don't have you know the latest Xbox system. So well, well, they did. They have just uh, gotten Epic Games to add Middle Eastern servers. So I'd imagine some people have good internet over there. There we go. Man, uh, hopefully, hopefully they just get bored and distract. Hope somebody like airdrops a fucking like um like fucking fifteen tons of weed. And like a bunch of like Xboxes and like maybe some maybe some pornography. I don't know. Maybe these guys will lose interest and yeah, fucking yeah. enjoy the finer the finer things in life. They have all that. Yeah. They, they have all that. Just like how Ted Haggard had access to the fucking guys and he was still a prick. <laughs> Nothing. There's no there's no Marshall plan for being an asshole. You just <laughs> no one ever stops being a hypocrite. 
people are just people are just fucking wretched yeah. and you know i guess you just have to wait till they die or something yeah. you know maybe i'm too pessimistic but no uh, no you're right <laughs> i wish you were right the streamer slash former esports athlete shroud oh yeah i follow uh, him the reason we have esports in north america one of the greatest to ever do it have you noticed that sometimes he'll get like a five thousand dollar donation on stream from somebody with a oh, yeah. very clearly like golf golfy <laughs> yeah. name like a Kuwait? It's always very funny to me. Yeah, just like... some like a, just just some guy sitting in Kuwait or the UAE or Saudi Arabia with just millions of dollars, nothing to do all day. And he's just watching Shroud just drop people, and he's like, "Oh, here you go." Just found this in my couch. Yeah, he's like freshly decapitated somebody and is like holding their head while clicking the PayPal donate button. Yeah. <laughs> Good for Shroud. Get that money, dude. Yeah, get that. You, yeah, you, get that head. You, money. you have you have such insane aim. I don't care who who gives you money. <laughs> I guarantee you, he doesn't know what's going on with that. May I feel like that's gonna be the new thing is uh guys um just sort of paying guys like Shroud to play games with them. Yeah. <laughs> because they did, you know what? They did do that with uh, fighting. They did that with jujitsu. The In the UAE, a lot of Royals just bought their way into being good at jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, by just taking the best instructors, giving them, you know, just putting out a blank check and saying how much. So you're yeah. saying, so you're saying potentially that like the guy at the end of Taken that he has to fight on the boat with like the two knives. He's... I feel like anyone who claims to be an expert knife fighter is just an insane, insane huckster. He <laughs> 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 might challenge him to a, a grappling contest or yeah. uh, now like playground one v ones. Yeah, yeah. NBS and Saudi Arabia. Like, what's next? I mean, there seems to have been so much. So much happened in so little time with MBS. Like, what? What's he? Oh, what's... This, this is my most absurd prediction, but I, I stand by it. I think he has uh, at most two years left to live, and the CIA just okay someone whacking him. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. Uh, from all the articles I I, uh, I was reading around Saudi Arabia, and and the specialists were like, yeah, every once in a while, the U.S. just realizes that a puppet is not playing right. <laughs> Like something's a bit wrong and they get too big for their britches and they just fucking wipe the slate. Yeah, he's going to walk into an embassy. Uh, he's going to have a, a conversation with 13 individuals uh, and a body double uh, will walk out wearing some of his clothes. Well, well I mean, what, you know, what, who, is, who, is, who is MBS except for an extremely rich and lucky by accident of birth version of Tommy from Goodfellas who doesn't do any of his own <laughs> yes, who doesn't do oh any of his own dirty work so how how perfect is it if he not goes out you know not just like Kishogi but like Tommy yeah uh, oh God, just he th oh, he thinks the CIA he thinks the CIA is going to okay the sale of you know some ridiculous weapon we haven't seen from the cold since the cold war like a Davy Crockett handheld nuke the, the heart <laughs> attack gun pop <laughs> Yeah, it's like some it's like something from fucking like Borderlands too. It's got like all crazy like neon lights and shit yeah. on it. Yeah. It's well, all cell shaded. Because the thing with the thing with MBS is that he's stupid. He's a yeah. dumb guy. Uh all his big plays, the the Saudi incursion to Yemen, the blockade of Qatar, uh the kidnapping of Hariri, they all backfired spectacularly. <laughs> Spectacular. He took Jamel Khashoggi who was a guy that no one in the world cared about or knew. And they turned this just this, you know, I'm sorry, a Saudi David Brooks into a martyr. He's a fucking dummy. Yeah. He worked as a as a fucking crown consultant. Like he was yes. crown aligned. He, he's a never Trumper. Like he basically saw MBS come 
And he's like, oh, no, this is a new bad thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it's like if Donald Trump, like, killed David French and turned him into a hero. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even, even like, Donald Trump's instincts are significantly better than MBS's. MBS is yeah, a yeah. uniquely stupid individual. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's just it's getting to the point. Because they've, they, you've noticed you haven't heard a lot from him lately or seen a lot of him. I think yeah. that everyone was like, all right, you, you literally have made the worst possible decisions when they've been offered to you every fucking time for the past two years. Let's chill out. But I don't know how long he is for this world. I think he's got yeah. one more thing like that in him. And knowing him, he's going to do it, right? I don't know what it will be. Something awful. He's yeah, going to try to like, he'll try to like kill Geraldo Rivera or something. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's just something bizarre because, and then, all right, see ya. And then it's just, it's just, you know, one of thousands of crown princes who will happily do the job in a less stupid way. And then we just pretend like this all never happened. Yeah. And then, uh, and then it becomes, a, then, it, uh, then it becomes physically impossible to take the Hodge because of climate change. All the Saudis moved to Switzerland or something. Yeah. Uh, we, we just pretend that never happened. Uh, there's this weird population of a few thousand guys who give a million dollars to shroud or ninja every few months. <laughs> we just, we just pretend nothing, nothing happened. We learn nothing. Uh, just a part of the earth is completely glassed over due to climate change. <laughs> Literally no change in behavior. Uh, and that's it. And I love it. I think it's good. Yeah. It's good. It's great. It's fun. We love it. <laughs> How do you think U.S.-Saudi relations are, are going to evolve? Uh, we were just uh, studying that that in 2001, you know, even after 9-11, the, the general sentiment among the Saudi population was that uh, bin Laden did the right thing or whatever, uh, which is uh, whatever. I mean, awful, but in so, so many ways, it's understandable because of the amount of intervention that had happened in, in the region. And then by 2006, they had experienced a bunch of terrorist attacks on their own soil, and suddenly the sentiment was changing, which to me strikes strikes me as such a stupid reason to change your opinion on that. It's like, oh right. yeah, now the terrorism that has been you know basically caused by all these insane interventions that don't make any sense, uh, just like you know play things for these people. And then it's like, oh well, it's also happening to us now. I guess we're not so different after all. Well, is I think that's just the human condition. It's not uniquely that's just everyone, you know. That's us. That's us, you know. We're that way. Every everyone, everyone is that way. Everyone is selfish and tribalist and and short sighted and thinks the only way to stop terrorist attacks is uh, more interventions. And of course, and you know, there's also a precious lack of information over there. They don't know. I think a lot of people. Also, opinion poll. It's very rough to run a good opinion poll over there for a billion reasons. So I don't know how much stock I put into that. Yeah, it was run by the Saudi uh, like intelligence too. So it's like, exactly you know? yeah, exactly the Saudi Frank Luntz, who's also their their uh, head of the CIA. But uh, a lot of those attacks in Saudi Arabia, you could trace them back to people who were uh, cultivated by the General Intelligence Directorate. Yeah, uh, but it's like the average person does not know that. Just like the average person here doesn't know that. Well, they they have even less of a chance of knowing that over there, uh, due to just extremely tight controls on what you can and can't say. But the, I I don't think relations are going to change. Yeah, still partying, the, 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 still the, bombs, the, still oil. Yeah, still crystal. I balls. mean that, that's that's why that's why you haven't seen MBS in the news. If they were changing, it'd still be in the news and be like, all right, we're officially sanctioning. We're not going to do it. No, I could have. Anyone could have fucking told you that. I mean. There are just there's too much money. There's too many wholly mediocre, just fucking 
and nobody nothings in uh, Washington D.C. who rely on that check. You know, how many think tank, how many think tank people their just entire lives are funded by, if not Saudi money, you know, Qatar or UAE, yeah. uh, just that type of money. You can't you can't turn over that Apple cart. No. People's kids got to go to the new school. People people got to get a new Volvo. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's really you know the, the when you realize. The boring middle upper middle class lives that uh, Empire makes possible. It really just it really you just hate to think about it. Someone's doing all this so they can get a tote bag. So <laughs> said it before, but it's so how quite much upsetting. of uh, how many of, of your monthly subscribers, uh, you know, on the Chapo Patreon are just uh, Sa- Saudis <laughs> using bot farms to pay you in increments of five? I've met one. <laughs> I've met one. Well, not not like no 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 no. He was a good. He wasn't like a guy just trying to like listen in. He's an incredibly kind guy, and he actually changed my opinion about a lot. He he read an article I wrote for Deadspin, and uh, I met him uh, somewhere uh, that he he was in America for, and uh, he said that I was like too harsh on like average Saudis, and it made me sort of reevaluate. Yeah. But he was just an incredibly nice person. But I had the same reaction meeting him that I had talking to a lot of Saudis, which is just I just wanted them to get out of there. <laughs> they were yeah. too nice to be. Uh, they're too nice to be there, uh, and it's it's a brutal place if you have certain politics or certain yeah. beliefs, as, as a lot of the people I talk to do. Yeah, it's like the Iranian people. It's like it's like any yeah population under this you know kind of cast of incredibly stupid and rich people that just play with their lives like they're nothing, and and it seems like no matter what's happening on the geopolitical stage, you'll always have that population that's just trying to get through the day or whatever. That's most people. So yeah, let's talk about QAnon. Do you do you like conspiracy theories in general? Have you looked into QAnon? I like them a lot. QAnon's a tough one to follow, uh, logistically, uh, because it's just so. There's no central QAnon source, and you kind of have to browse hashtags. It's just the way that Twitter timelines work. Yeah, things aren't as chronological as you'd like them to be, and it's hard to term search. It's hard to term search stuff because they're so paranoid, and they like yeah purposely misspell and uh, obfuscate things because they think the CIA is going to read it. No, dude, they uh, think despite... we're CIA. Like we have been, oh, yeah. we have been now like brought into the fold of the conspiracy. They think um, Travis is like a paid operative. Like they write, they write about it. Like we're part of the conspiracy now, which personally I'm thrilled about. One of the big guys actually put Travis into a human centipede yes, of, of yeah. anti-QAnon stuff, where he eats the shit of the person in front and he poops it into the mouth after. And yeah, I, this is a, I'm feeding all this anti-Q propaganda to the wider media, apparently. <laughs> So yeah, it's decentralized, so it's a lot harder to kind of deal with or squash because there's no leadership. Everything's based on like, go figure it out for yourselves. And people are like consuming decentralized information. So they'll be consuming a meme created by someone who studied it. And who it's like, it's it's very hard to pinpoint and, and deal with. Uh, something tells me it'll be around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, well, I mean, it will be around for a while because of how uniquely appealing it is. Because it's it's a never ending hunt for sickos that you'll never find, so you can just always feel like a good person. Yeah, that's that's really it, right? Yeah, talk about like heretic hunts. Yeah, no, that's I mean, at the core of all this is a hunt for heretics, and it is there is there is definitely a and I remember it was really interesting seeing the Q narrative sort of shift from like all the Spygate shit um, to this sort of like good against evil, like Christian, you know, you know, Western Judeo Christian values, although not really Judeo because 
once you get to the fucking like super bottom of it, it's all fucking anti-Semitic shit. Oh, like, what do you mean? They love Jewish people. They just think it's that part of the rocket that falls off as you head on to yeah. heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think QAnon's happening now? Like, you know, uh, why is it such a perfect time for this shit to blow up? It's the anxiety of getting what you wanted in the election of Trump and then nothing really just the exact same shit happens. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you agree with Matt on that. Right, yeah. It's it, it, it's it can't just be that this guy's president and that all he's doing is just watching TV. It, it, it's that uh, he's on a secret hunt for sickos and pedophiles and freaks. Uh, but he's doing it like a, like a tapping game, like on his phone, not really looking at it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, it's appealing because there's there will never be any proof, right? And you can never stop hunt. You can never, you, it will never be disproven to you. No one's going to ever dis, is going to disprove this in entirety. I mean, you see it with Matt, when Matt tries to like bet QAnon people about, you know, when the next sicko is going to be arrested. <laughs> yeah. And it will, it will like, and if there's like an NSA guy, a low level NSA guy that gets taken out for something, they're like, see, yeah, you know, <laughs> you can always have proof. And it is, it's the ultimate in Protestantism uh, because it's you are you're looking for the disgusting, sick, depraved freaks. You're trying to find them. You never have to worry that they're going to prove their innocence. You've already right. made up your mind and they have, you know, they have no way to disprove it. And it's also like it's a way where you're the only good person in the world. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that would explain why a lot of the times when they point fingers, it's just away from, you know, white Christianity, basically. <laughs> yes. It's like, no, no, it's the Jews and the Arabs together. You know, historically, they've loved each other. So, yeah, now they're pulling the strings together. But, yeah, no, that's uh, – but I do I do like QAnon a lot. Yeah, he's got a nice – it's like you, what you were saying earlier. He's got a nice, like, panache. Like, there's, there's, there's some style to it that's uh, – that's you know at the very least at the very least he's 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 he she they is trying to make it interesting. Yeah, exactly. It le it leaves it on the table, yeah. and they are very they are incredibly creative. Yeah, yeah. You know, it really is. It's like a build your own conspiracy kind of kind of thing. Yeah. Where where sort of uh you know Q never uh, rarely at least tells people what to believe. He just sort of like sends them on sort of scavenger hunts. Yeah. And then people sort of decide what whatever conspiracy you know they they think that they want to believe. Yeah. He's like, oh, in, in for the spy the spygate shit. Cool. We got you covered. Yeah. It's like. Oh, in for like a little bit of like white nationalism. Cool, we got you covered too. It's like, oh, oh, you wanna, oh, you wanna like go after the Jews on this? Mm -hmm. Oh man, well, like head over to vote because we definitely got you covered there. Oh yeah, you, you want a little bit of satanic panic? We can, mm -hmm. we can t get you yeah. anxious about Moloch. And the, yeah. the funny thing is, even when he tries to be like, no, not this one, they don't listen. Like yeah. he's like, no, JFK Jr. Uh, is dead. He tells everybody, and they're like, oh my god, this is the best he's ever yeah, been. Right. He's like, a psyop. They're yeah. like. Q must be, guys, you got to understand that there's got to be disinformation along with actual 
intel drop. That's that's the thing. It's like you were saying earlier. The thing about QAnon is it's fully insulated. There's literally no way because of the nature of the way it's set up and because it pulls in from all of these other conspiracy theories that have been going on forever. Yeah. It's just like totally insulated. So even if somebody were like, "Up, oh, we found out who it was. It was this fucking, you know, 11th grader named like Gary P and uh, <laughs> you know, he's been, you know, he discovered 4chan. Uh, his mom took the controllers away and so he's been dicking around on the internet. People would still be like, "Oh, he's Doesn't a matter. setup, he's a plant." Like it's it's already Yeah, there's no way. There's it's it's out of the hands of whoever began it, yes. that's for sure. Yes. Um, what do you think is next for the American hellscape, uh, Felix, just in terms of what we we think and how we interact with politics? I mean, uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, just uh, repeats of repeats of history. I think millennials are doomed to become a repeat of Generation X, a very wounded, uh, lonely generation, a very self-righteous <laughs> one that accomplishes very, very, very little yeah. Uh, yeah. and just ends up sort of replicating the previous generation. Uh General continuing trend towards loneliness and atomization. I think Gen Z is the wild card because I think that we've underplayed how much of an effect 9-11 had on our national psyche. We've kind of, I think, we've optimistically overplayed how much the recession did. We think the recession made everyone distrust and hate rich people. and That is unfortunately not the case. Uh, 9-11 imbued this sort of awful spirit of fake emotionality and sanctimoniousness in our country that we never really got rid of. But the first generation with no memory of 9-11 except for seeing it in archival footage. Gen Z seems to be completely without this. Hmm. And That's I am interested I'm interested to see what happens when the youngest voting generation, the youngest adult generation as they come of age has a sort of bru- brutality a good type of brutality I would say to them that uh, the previous two absolutely lacked, the previous two sort of toothless generations lacked. I wonder what it's going to be like when this very absurd generation that they're not wounded in the way millennials were because they weren't promised a future. Millennials were, yeah. uh, these people weren't. Uh, I, I, I'm interested to see what happens when they run into these absurdly stupid but confident boomers, these uh, sanctimonious extras and millennials, uh, this world where like a sizable portion of the older population believes in this absurd child sacrifice community theory, conspiracy yeah. theory. Uh, but I, I don't pretend to know what's going to happen. Uh, I feel more uh, comfortable making cultural predictions because I think those are those have less moving parts. Right. Uh, right. But political, I have no idea what to tell you. I'm not incredibly optimistic, but also... I'm never right. In my sort of grand stage political predictions, I'm never right. So I've learned to just stop guessing. So I don't know what to tell you. Just ask Matt and, and Virgil. Well, I mean, you, you on one hand, just pure optimism, and then death, black marshes. The part, the part <laughs> in H.G. Wells is the time machine where the guy goes too far forward in the future and just sees a, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a giant mollusk. <laughs> lurching in the foreground so yeah. we'll see you recently finished a documentary series called fighting in the age of loneliness can you tell the listener a little bit about that uh fighting in the age of loneliness is i will not at all say it's an authoritative history of uh mixed martial arts 
but it is it is my version of events. What I think happened to a sport that I uh, absolutely loved, and I think lost a lot of its spirit. And I think you can make implications that that has happened to everything that was uh, unique and interesting in our culture, as our uh, our trend towards financialization and commodification of all niche experiences and a desire to make everything one media market and the collapse of all interpersonal relationships and the loneliest age in, in modern history have uh, that befallen That is devastatingly us. true. You don't like the you don't like having uh, the the Chinese character in the 30 uh, 30 person cast of the latest shark atrocity movie? <laughs> I know, I just uh, my only politics are inclusion in Marvel movies. That's the only, <laughs> the only thing I care about. Yeah, that's why I tune into Chapo for sure. <laughs> Uh, are there any other projects in the, in the pipelines? Uh, no, I wish, <laughs> I wish I'm very, exhausted. I'm very, I'm very rudderless without a pro. Well, I do have one. I do. I'm reading, uh, Carlo Nausgaard's my struggle with oh, Andrew God. from the E1 podcast. And we're going to do a podcast about it. I actually like it a lot. It's actually a very, he's, a, he's yeah. very funny. Like he's what I predicted he would be, but he's also a terrific writer. Yeah. Uh, but I think that project is actually going to be a lot different than what people expect. Right. Uh, which which I like. I think if you keep giving people exactly what they they expect of you, they go they grow to resent you. But uh, no, I I don't have as big a project as I did. I kind of wish I had one because it just drives me drives me insane to not have one. I will I will tell you if I could do anything next, it would be to do Fighting of the Age and Loneliness, but about esports and streaming. Oh I, yeah, I, I I have a similar. I have an interesting thesis for that one, but who kn- who knows? There's no money in di- not no money in writing documentaries, but there's no money in companies for people who make documentaries, right? Yeah, so. you have to put. I I just I I work in in entertainment, and I just we I just came off producing a documentary, and it we had to come up with all the money on our own. Yeah, there's like, just the companies don't make enough money for people to make uh, more of them. But yeah. hey, uh, if you're if you are. Jeff Bezos, maybe Jeff Bezos is soon to be ex-wife, and you want to uh, fund Let's Go, my esports documentary. Nice. Maybe it will cleanse away the sins that you feel. I like the name, but I was was thinking you could change it to uh, Ready Player One. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) If you want to fund my lawsuit against Ready Player One for stealing the title. (laughs) We'll never make the documentary, but the lawsuit will be its own story. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, man. It's really my pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, this is excellent. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to another week of QAnon Anonymous. We don't run advertising on our podcast. We are supported by our listeners. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous. If you pay $5 a month, you'll get access to our premium episodes, including all the ones we've already done. And it will give uh, the show a chance to grow and put out even more stuff. Our goal is to put out high-quality content consistently and remain fiercely independent. When you subscribe to our Patreon, you contribute to making this a reality. I want to thank our new $5 contributors, Sabir, Jeff C., Ryan, Chris P., Justin M., Teddy B., B.O.L., Morgan H., Chris T., A Millennial, Susie V., David R., Brian P., Jamie S., Aaron H., Simon F., and David T., And a big thanks to our current $10 contributors, Allison L., Adam W., Drew M., Eric O., Joel D., John S., Josh R., Luke B., and Robert B. 
Uh, also, a massive thank you to our $20 contributors, Chris T and Susie R. Chris T is our new uh, $20 contributor. And uh, just, just on a personal level, we love you, buddy. Uh, and we'll be recording, a, a, as promised, a, a personalized uh, audio segment uh, to thank you. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. If you can't afford to support us financially, you can always help by telling friends about us, posting about us on social media and message boards, etc. If you haven't already, go on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. The guest today was Felix Biederman. You can follow him at ByYourLogic on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter, too, at Julian Field, F-E-E-L-D, at Real Rockatansky, and at Travis underscore View. The podcast Twitter handle is at QAnon Anonymous. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. 